Why do churches still run in the 21st century? It's 2023. Why are we still here? In fact, why would we still expect young people to turn to Christ? Uh, why would we have a youth ministry uh, team that raises up the next generation to consider Jesus Christ as Lord? Why is that possible? Just excuse me while I get my clicker. I forgot it. Uh, I was going to try and subtly walk down there, but you'd all go, what is he doing? He's uh, forgotten his glasses. No, they're on his head. Um, he's forgotten his notes. No, they're here. I know what to say. He's forgot the clicker, but I've got, I've got it now. Uh, why, why, does it, why does making disciples of Jesus still matter? You know, live and let live. Uh, you, may, you may find yourself thinking, well, it's so good and fine for churches to exist and let them do what they like to do, uh, that old ancient story that they propagate. But live, just live and let live. Isn't that the nature of our society? Don't You believe what you believe. Let us believe what we believe. As long as we don't get in each other's way, that's how our society will move forward. So why would a church believe it's important that we actually, actually step out and reach our community uh, to, to know the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, why is it a sign of a healthy church that we try to reach uh, out the outsider? that people know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we crazy people? Uh, in your outline, as you uh, walked in, you hopefully received one of these. And as Catherine pointed out, uh, the text I'm going to use today in my talk is in there. And you can see the points that I'm going to go through today to answer that question. Why is, why is reaching uh, the outsider so important? Why does making disciples of Jesus still matter in 2023 and beyond? And the three points you've got there you can see clearly is that the, the, there's a truth that drives us there's a love that compels us, and then there's the ministry, which is called the ministry of reconciliation. Our service is reconciliation, being reconciled to God. So first of all, the truth that drives us. If you look at verse 11, it says, Since then, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now, there's a little sermon in itself. There's two points there. Since we uh, know what it is to fear the Lord, and I could talk about that, uh, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, therefore we try to persuade others. There's a cause and effect, and there's, there's a, a simple way of going through uh, what I want to say. Uh, the, the fear of the Lord, well, it's a serious reflection and understanding of who God is in truth. Uh, it's not good enough for us to just wonder who God is and come up with an idea of him from our own, um, our own mystery, our own imagination. We want to encounter God in truth. Uh, we believe, as, as a church, that the, the Bible is um, not only full of truth, but it's actually historically reliable, that it is something that's outlived kingdoms. Uh, you know, this, is, this goes back beyond, uh, before the American Empire began, the, the United States of America. This is older than the British Empire. Uh, this, is, this goes back to the, the completed word, goes back to the Roman Empire. In fact, the, the, uh, the Old Testament goes even further back beyond older than the Persian Empire. This book here has outlasted kingdoms and still exists today. And so even the, the, the smallest inquirer might wonder why has it outlived so many different mind, ways of thinking, minds, uh, uh, um, empires that have tried to conquer, and yet this is the book that prevails. As Christians, we believe that it actually is, doesn't just contain truth. It is the truth. It, it, it reveals to us who God is. And what it tells us quite clearly is that, that everyone will have to give an account to God. 
we all have to give an answer to God. And so when it says here that since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Uh, We're convinced, as Jesus said, that hell is real. And if hell is real, then that ought to get us to sit up and pay attention. Heaven is real as well. And there's, there's something to look forward to. There's something to avoid, something to look forward to. If these, things, if these things are true, then it makes sense that a church would actually want to try to persuade others. Uh, it's, it's not a sign of, of rudeness. On my phone, on my uh, phone, I've got an app called Hazards Near Me. You probably have the app. You might have it on your phone here. It means that whenever a little um, grass fire breaks out around my home or near this church or in a beautiful camping ground near the south coast that I'm really keen to visit over the summer holidays, if a, a fire breaks out near that area, my phone alerts me and says there's, there's something that you need to be aware of. And I don't for a second think that the, fire, that the, the, the phone is being rude and obnoxious. It's doing exactly what I want it to do. It's warning me of something dangerous. Um, if there was a a big hole in front of me and I, was listed, I was, and I was texting and not paying attention, I'd love it if someone stopped me and said there's, a, there's danger ahead. And so this sentence here that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, therefore we try to persuade others. We don't tie people down and force them what to believe. We don't do, there's no persuasion, there's no, there's no punching and fighting. There's just, we, we try to persuade others that there is actually danger ahead. And, and that's our response. Now, if, if, if we seem crazy to you, that's fine. Uh, let me just read to you. Look at verse 13. Sentence 13 says, uh, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. In other words, if, if what we are saying makes no sense and, and seems like gibberish and, and jargon and, and rubbish to you, that's fine. We actually do believe in live and let live. Uh, uh, live and let live. But we will at least start and persuade a conversation and try and persuade you of the truth. He says that if, if uh, continuing on, verse 13, if, if we are out of our mind, if we're crazy, if you think we're crazy, as some say, it's for God that we're doing and it's not actually for you that we're doing it. We're not trying to get a, a good public review, a five-star review, and say whatever um, the world wants us to say. But it continues on and says, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. In other words, if... What I have begun to say today is at least a little bit curious to you. Is at least I'm interested to hear more about that than I can say that maybe you're perhaps ready to hear the full truth of God and move forward. We do this because the truth drives us. We're compelled that because of the fear of God, we want to try and persuade others. But it's not just about being right or wrong. Churches want to continue to, to spread the good news of Jesus... You've heard that we've got a letterbox drop. We're going to send a little card around the community to invite people to come to one of our Christmas services But because we want people in our community to step in and hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? It's not simply because we believe that we have the truth and we need to feel right. No, it's actually the love that compels us. There's a love that compels us to do this. But it's not our love. It's not a love that flows up from us and then we're overflowing and we want the whole world to feel this organic love that we feel. It's actually not our love that compels us. It's Christ's love that compels us. Have a look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. That's very interesting, isn't it? Have you ever said to someone that 
their love compels me to do something. It's a very curious thing. Because of their love, I'm compelled to do something. What is it about Christ's love that urges us, drives us to do something? The very next word in the sentence says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. It's because of the word substitution that compels us. The, the way that God has demonstrated his love, the way that God has shown us his love, is through substitution. That one man died so that many people need not die. Uh, this is a reference to the judgment of God. Though as Jesus went to the cross, he did die physically and under the Roman Empire, there they crucified him dead. But at the cross, something else was happening. The sky went dark. His, Jesus cry out, said, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something else happening at the cross other than flesh and blood giving up life. Jesus at the cross was standing in our place so that when we think about the future of standing before God, we have a price that's already been paid for us. Now, the word substitution is not an unusual word. If you're into sports, which I'm not, but I'll give you a sports illustration from someone who's not into sports, uh, you know that if a player's on the field and they, they, they're tired or, they're, or they've injured something, they call a substitution and another player comes in and takes their place. We, have, we need to have the same number of players on the field so someone else comes and substitutes um, for there. In, in Jesus' case, he stood where we were meant to stand before God in judgment, but Jesus was able to take that punishment and absorb it completely. The, verse 21 gives us a really great, clear um, picture of what happened at the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's that word substitution, but it's, I can also use the word exchange. It's a great exchange. So God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's a great claim of the Bible, to, to look at, the, at Jesus, this man of Nazareth, and to say, that man never sinned. That man had no sin. That man never lived his whole life in complete glory and honouring to God the Father. Everything he did was in response to God the Father, without, without shaking. Uh, any temptation that came his way, he turned the direction back to God the Father. He had no sin. And friends, the greatest problem in the human race is sin. What we do as a, as a human race is we try to fix the symptoms of sin. You know, War and greed and poverty, all these things need to be addressed. Amen. But they are the symptoms of a greater problem, which is sin. That all of us, deep in, de deep in our hearts, we have an innate sense of greed, of selfishness and autonomy. Autonomy means something like, I really don't want you to tell me what to do. Now, I might be polite and agree to do what you've asked me to do, but at the end of the day, I don't want you to be my boss. We do this to our parents. Don't you tell me what to do. We don't, maybe we don't say it to them, but we want to, we want to live, grow up and live our own life. We don't tell it to our parents. We tell it to the government, and ultimately we say it to God. We don't want you to actually speak into my life and direct me. We don't want you to be that king. I don't need that. I'd, I'd rather take God and shove him under the carpet and pretend that he doesn't exist. Friends, our world, our society uh, wants to do that, wants to push God as far away as possible. The West wants to kill God. And friends, I want to suggest that it's actually killing us. Our world is growing and growing in anxiety. And I think it's because we're, we, 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 
where we think we're doing ourselves a service by pushing Christianity into the history books. But what we need to do is actually come back and revisit the cross, where God sent his one and only son into the world to be a, a substitute for you, to take your sin that he never committed and to stand there before God and take on the full wrath of God so that you, you never have to experience that wrath of God. It's, the, it's called the, the great exchange, as, as, uh, as the famous Martin Luther once said. The great exchange. We have a great need, which is the cure for sin, the forgiveness of sin, the washing away of sin, and we have a great saviour who is the one and only way that we can be saved. If there are many ways to be saved, if there are many ways to get to heaven, if there's many ways to avoid hell, if there's many ways to be at peace with God, then I reckon God would never have sent his one and only son. If there are many ways, why would he give that amount of treasure for us? But heaven has, heaven has spent, uh, God has spent everything in heaven to save you. He's emptied the riches of his treasure trove. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If that was not the only way, then God would not, would not have even made it a way. But Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth and life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. They're the words of Jesus. Not the words of a church that, that created those words later on. These are the words of Jesus who God sent into the world. We, we need a substitute to deal with our sin. So the sinless one went to the cross and the exchange is that the sin that we carry for every big and minute uh, error in our life as we pursue a life away from God, this, we, we carry sin, we're immersed in sin. The, the prayer book I read earlier used the word we're mired by sin. God the Son takes all that on himself and pays for it. The price has been paid it's not, he doesn't sweep sin under the carpet as if it's okay, it's all right, I understand. No, he deals with it because he's a righteous and loving God who wants justice to be met. So Christ takes that punishment for us on the sin and we get in exchange something that's completely unfair to God. We get the title of righteous. These three girls who stood up and were baptised, they, they turned to Christ before today. This is a celebration day to remember what they had already committed to in their hearts but when, but when they commit their lives to, to God, they have been declared righteous, not because of what they have done, but because of what Jesus has done, our great substitute that we all need. And, and I won't spend a, a great deal of time on this, but verse 17, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So the Christian faith doesn't, doesn't uh, commend us to just be slightly better people than we were yesterday. The Christian faith says, I want you to abandon everything, all the investment that you have in this world, and I want you to commit to Christ because he is your king, master, saviour and lord. And so when you come to Christ, it's as, if, it's as if, and it is really, a new creation. You've been born again, says in John chapter 3. You've been born again. The things of this world no longer hold you and you're no longer... Uh, this is no longer your home. And so Christians then regard this world as a, as a campsite. It's a place where we're staying for now, but we're longing for a future home. Uh, we're, we're, we're homesick for a better country. And so Christians begin to learn and love these four words, come, Lord Jesus, come. We're longing for that. The old is gone. The old has no future. There's no future 
in grappling and clinging onto the things of this world. The future is only entirely in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are driven by the truth. We believe it's true. We are compelled because of the love of God. It's God's love that compels us, that Christ died for sins so that we do not have to face the judgment seat of God. And what we are left with in the church is the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. And what I'm about to read to you here is that the church is not in the business of reconciling. We do not reconcile you to God. What I'm about to read to you is a a sentence clear in the Bible that says that God reconciles you to God. And the church are like salespeople. (laughs) We're like the... Well, actually, to use the illustration that I'll also read here, we're like ambassadors. We're like representatives from God that says, "We, we really think you should sit up and listen to this. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, this great exchange that's taken place, the new creation that's been defied. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Do you see what that sentence means? Is that there's a problem between humanity and God and the problem is sin and we are not reconciled. I don't know what the positive other word from that. We're not conciled. There was no conciliation. I don't know what that is. But that we're not friends with God. We're enemies with God is the, is the, is the language. Uh, there's a debt that we owe with God that we cannot pay. But God, seeing this problem, solves the problem himself by sending Jesus into the world to die for us and say, come to me, all who believe, repent and believe, and be baptised, and you will be, uh, you'll be an, an heir of eternal life. All this is from God, not the church, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and, and gave us, that's the body of believers, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not any other way, not counting... Not counting people's sins against them. Another great little phrase that says, This is what can be achieved for you in Christ Jesus. That when you when you you stand before the throne of God on judgment day, God will not even look at your ledger. He'll say, Are you in Christ? You say, I'm in Christ. And he'll say, You're in. You I, I knew you were in before you got here. Because on the twenty sixth of November two thousand twenty three, you gave your life to Christ. And you have assurance of eternal life from that day onwards, if that's the day that you turn to Christ. And uh, continuing, verse uh, 19b, And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's very clear. Is this message true or false? If you believe it could be true, then I invite you to enter in and, 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 and start a longer conversation uh, with us here at Kingswood or another church you're familiar with uh, to, to, to pursue this. Could it be true? Then pursue it. If you think this is all hogwash, then thank you for being here. I'm so glad that you've sat and, and, and listened to this talk. Is it true? Could it be true? I can tell you that we, ha- we, we can investigate the truth uh, claims, and there is so much evidence to say that this is a book worth listening to. Is God's love compelling that we cannot, we will not be able to bear before the judgment seat of God on our own merits? We, you can't do it. Don't even try. Don't even have an idea that you've been good enough and we'll see what God says on the day. 
God's already made the statement that none of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it's, it's Christ's love that compels us. God doesn't just point the finger and say, here's the problem. He says, I see the problem and I've given you the solution. And so now as a church, we, we, we implore you, be reconciled to God. We implore you. There, there's, there's no reason in my mind to hesitate. And you, for those who are not regular members here, you've actually, I just want to say you've joined in on a series that we've been going through on, uh, on growing a healthy church. You know, just like you want to grow your body or your children to be healthy, you want to work out what are the things that go in to the ingredients of growing a, a healthy person, hum, human being, so that we can be, not just be a church that does stuff, we want to be a church that's healthy and bearing fruit and, and, and loving God. And this sits into, the, into that framework of growing a healthy church because we, we're compelled to reach. We're not, we're, not, we're not comfortable to just come into church, close the doors and be a safe little family. We actually want to reach our community and try to persuade as many as possible to be reconciled to God. Friends, this message is a message of love. And we're convinced that everybody should hear it and be persuaded. So give it a good hearing. If I, if I came to you with a, a little slither of a, an idea that could, could make you the happiest person in the universe, you'd at least want to click on that thumbnail on YouTube and listen to it, wouldn't you? Let's just hear the guy out. Uh, if we're convinced that everybody should hear it, if we're convinced that everyone should hear it and be persuaded, then let's be a church that is healthy in this way, and, and look uh, to reach and, and to save. It may not be as crazy as you think to, to give your life to Christ uh, today, tomorrow, uh, but sooner rather than later. Let me pray. Let me, let me close this talk in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this ministry of reconciliation that nothing in our church, nothing in any church across the globe can do to bring people to peace with you. It's all the work of um, you, Father, sending Jesus Christ, your Son, into the world. We thank you for the love that you have showed us. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness in following, um, in living this life perfectly and in willing to go to the cross for us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross in our place. And I pray, Lord, for us all today that you'd help us to know where we sit in response to this message. Help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves. And wherever we land, I pray, Lord, you'd help us to leave today knowing what we ought to do next. We pray for your help in this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.